Church, if you would uh, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Doubt is a silent enemy that is regularly at work in our hearts and in our minds. In the midst of doubt, sometimes we feel like we're the only doubters around us. Sometimes doubt can be profoundly dark and overwhelming. Sometimes doubt can lead us to wander from God and His people. Today, our goal is to explore the reality of doubt, how it can impact our faith, and how we can respond to the doubts we will all face in different seasons of our life. And so again, hopefully by now you've turned to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. Just as a reminder, we're today in an end of the four-week little series that we're calling Finding Hope for Our Struggles, as we look at some of the common struggles that impact the vast majority of us at different times in our life. We started this three weeks ago, looking at our identity, and then two weeks ago, we looked at the topic of loneliness. Last week, the fear of man, and today, finally, doubt. Next week, we are going to begin the book of Romans. And let me just tell you, for your reading next week, read the book of Romans. There's 16 chapters. Start today if you want. You can. It's a little bit more than two a day, and you'll get there by the time uh, next week. And so uh, let's go ahead and begin, though, by reading Mark chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 2 and read all the way to verse 32. The precious and errant infallible word of God says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered them and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, What are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, who has a mute spirit. 
And whatever it's, wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he's killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. First Baptist Church of the Great Gables, the last withers and flower fades. The word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Father, we certainly do thank You for this powerful word that You've given us. As we've read it already, our hearts have been pricked to understand more, to long to know You more. We ask for Your Spirit's help in keeping us attentive, avoiding all distraction, being focused on the grand glory that's at display in this passage. Lord, help us to do as You commanded the disciples and to hear Him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, again, we are going to see the hope that Jesus offers for doubters like you and like me. Just two points this morning. First, I want us to see assurance for doubting disciples. The first thing I want us to see is assurance for doubting disciples. In fact, today's text is is actually closely connected with what we find in chapter 8 just before this. There At the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked his disciples who people said that he was. Then he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter had responded accurately in Mark chapter 8 verse 29 that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then right after that, Jesus began to tell those very same disciples that he must go and suffer many things. That he'd be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and that he must be killed and three days later rise again. After Jesus told them this, Peter rebuked Jesus for saying this. Jesus returned the rebuke of Peter and rebuked Peter for being opposed to the plan of God. Now, you can imagine, just based on that interaction, that this must be a, a confusing and troubling time for his disciples. On the one hand, Jesus affirmed that 
He is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for. But he's also saying that he must suffer and be killed and then rise again from the dead. This was not at all what they were expecting. In light of these inward struggles, because of the real and outward challenges that were lying ahead, Jesus gave these three disciples some assurance. We see this in the event we have traditionally referred to as the transfiguration. Jesus took his inner circle of disciples, that being Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain together. We see in verse 2 that Jesus transfigured before them. This was a radical transformation in Jesus' appearance. It was not a change of nature of who Jesus was. It was for a moment his true nature revealed itself in a glimpse. The essence of Jesus that was always there now shone through before these three disciples. And during this encounter, two Old Testament figures, Elijah and Moses, appear and they begin to talk with Jesus. We're told in Luke's account that they were talking about his departure, meaning they were talking with Jesus about his looming death and resurrection and ascension. Well, what was the meaning of all this? Well, it's likely that Moses and Elijah represent the prophetic tradition that had pointed to and prepared the way throughout the generations for the coming Messiah. It's possible that perhaps, I believe, Moses is intended to represent the law and Elijah represented the prophets. And we see here a reminder to Jesus' disciples and to us of the beautiful continuity of God's redemptive plan. The coming of Jesus was not some new idea. This was God's plan all along. Again and again through numerous voices, God had been preparing the way, saying this one would come. And now Jesus is assuring his disciples by saying, I am the one who has come, who the way has been prepared for. Peter, James, and John, they, they witness all of this. They, they see this as he did. Peter in chapter 8 is the one who also speaks up here. In fact, Peter's pretty much always the one who speaks up. He says in verse 5, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, O Peter. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what exactly was Peter doing with these comments? On the, on the one hand, I, I think Peter was just being Peter. When in doubt, Peter is always the type of person who speaks. He was bold enough in chapter 8 to rebuke Jesus who had just said that he was the Messiah. And here again he speaks up and he seems to be alluding to the significance of the tabernacle. Right? This understanding the tabernacle had a rich and important history in the people of Israel. God had tabernacled with his people during the exodus. There was this constant longing, this hope that God would tabernacle with his people again. And so perhaps... Peter's thinking, well, we need to construct these tabernacles in order that we might appropriately relate to God here. Of course, what Peter was missing was the greater reality of the tabernacle had already come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in the coming of Christ, God was tabernacling among them. It's the very meaning of his incarnation. So, 
we see then this, this cloud begins to overshadow them. And a voice comes out of the cloud. And here we find this, the, the climax of the transfiguration. It's the voice of God the Father who says in verse 7, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. This is the Father's word to these three disciples. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. God our Father affirms Jesus is indeed His Son, that He is the promised one, the Christ. And then after affirming that, He assures them by saying, Hear Him. In other words, listen to Jesus. About what though? Of course, on the one hand, He would certainly be saying, Listen to all that Jesus has to say about everything. But in particular, in this moment of time, in the context, they need to understand and come to believe what Jesus had been telling them specifically about his looming suffering, death, and resurrection. They need to listen to this because this was the very core of Jesus' mission. It was the news of this that was the very source, however, of their struggles. It was this very thing that was actually fueling the doubts of Peter, James, and John. And so God seeks to assure them in their struggles and doubts. And then in a moment, Moses and Elijah are gone and only Jesus remains. And as they're making their way now down the mountain, Jesus instructs them, don't tell anyone else about this until after he had risen from the dead. And then on the way down, then Jesus, uh, they, they ask Jesus a question in verse 11. And look what they ask. This, is, this struck me. And they asked him saying, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is a reference to the last few verses of the prophet Malachi, where we're told that the Lord would send forth the prophet Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. But as I thought about this, I thought, why would they be asking this question? Obviously, it's likely that it's because they just have seen Elijah. They might be wondering, because he's there, does this mean the the great and final day of the Lord has come? Perhaps now the Messiah won't need to suffer. But Jesus responds to them. He says that they are right and Elijah does come first. But he's actually already come. Because the Elijah who was to come was John the Baptist, the forerunner who went before and has already been put to death. And as we think about Jesus' disciples here, we see that they struggle with doubts for a variety of reasons. They had some doubts particularly because of the unique claims in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is is clearly claiming to be the unique Son of God. He is explicitly telling them that He must die and rise from the dead. And so it's not surprising that they would wrestle with this. It is an outrageous statement. It's not surprising that we also, as His people, would at times face doubts about the unique person and claims of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus makes a number of unique claims. He says He alone is the one true Savior and King. He says that He came to rescue sinners like us through His own death and resurrection. By that to provide a great salvation that is held out to those, not to those who work for it, who are good enough or religious enough, but only those who understand that they can't work for it. 
who will repent and turn to Christ to receive this free gift by faith. Jesus in those claims stands apart from every other world religion. So people may often even doubt these unique claims of Christ. Maybe even today, you don't consider yourself to be a Christian. And this is where you find yourself doubting the unique claims of Christ. Well, if this is where you are, we're so glad that you would join us this morning. And we would love for you to allow us to explore this more with you. We would love to be a help to you. And our prayer is that one day you would see this very thing as ultimate good news. That one day soon you might turn to Christ by faith and receive this free gift He has uniquely provided. But it seems as if the disciples also contributed to their own doubt in some ways. And I wonder if we can learn much from this. Primarily, they contributed to their own doubt because Jesus didn't fit what they were looking for. They they had a framework for what a Savior, what a Messiah would look like, what He would be like. And Jesus increasingly showing himself, telling them he's very, very different from what they had thought. See, they were hoping for a Messiah who would come in power and reign. Many were hoping he would overthrow the Romans. And now Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've come to suffer. I've come to die. That that didn't fit the framework they had in mind. Yes, he is the Messiah as they had hoped for, but so, so different from their pre-existing hopes. And because of this, they struggle with doubt. Could, Could Jesus actually be the one he says he is? And the reality is that many of us do the exact same today with the Lord Jesus Christ. We may say we want a God, but in fact, what we want is a God of our own making. Functionally, we want a God who agrees with all of our current views. Typically, we want a God who would affirm everything that's going on in our lifestyle. And if God contradicts that, then we reject or doubt Him. We also see in the disciples a temptation to focus on, yes, important, but secondary details and miss the big picture. Some of us are tempted by the same. I mean, this is astonishing to me. They're walking down the mountain after seeing the transfiguration. And what do they turn to? Hey, Jesus, let's talk a little bit about Elijah. Now look, it's significant. It's a a great question. But it's not ultimate, is it? They're exploring that question instead of dwelling upon what God the Father has said to them. Hear Him. And I wonder if maybe we're tempted here a little as well. We love, especially in, in today's time, and especially in this church, one of the things I love about this church, we, we love to ask difficult questions. And look, that is, a, that is a good thing. But sometimes the temptation can be for us to get sidetracked from the central focus of who is Jesus and only focus on those secondary details. As as we're thinking today about Christian faith, we want to keep a couple things in mind about our faith. And one of those is this. Friends, the Christian faith is reasonable. You and I are not asked to have faith in Christ without evidence. 
So, so if you wonder about how reliable is the Bible, if you want to do some research on the New Testament and even compare it to some other historically trusted documents, you will find significant support for its reliability. If you want evidence on the, uh, to explore the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth, the question, did he exist? What do even non-Christian authors say about him? You will find significant evidence to support that. And if you take an honest look, you will find that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It's not a blind faith. We are not asked to have faith without evidence. But we also, in the midst of that, need to remember that the Christian faith is still faith. There is much substantial evidence, but it still does require our faith. In fact, the honest truth is, Every single worldview requires faith. Often skeptics of Christianity will portray it as the only worldview out there that requires faith. But that's just not intellectually honest. Every worldview requires faith and so does ours. And so sometimes, because Christians want evidence, they'll go to the extremes of trying to prove every single point and therefore, if they can't, it fuels their doubts. Church, we we do have much evidence. We do have a reliable faith, but it is still faith. As we face doubts, sometimes we reinforce our own doubts by not honestly examining them. What I mean by that is we never hold up our doubt and go after that with the same intensity that we do going at the Christian faith. Instead, it's it's always belief in God that is questions. At at times, we should do a deep dive exploring. Can my doubt hold up? Is there substantial evidence to support my doubt? We should at times, I'm saying, doubt our doubts. The fact is, in today's world, it's quite easy to be a doubter of Christianity, isn't it? You would be no great rebel, even in the Bible Belt... If you're a skeptic of Christianity. In fact, in our culture, it seems to be a more rebellious thing to consider Christ and trust in him. Well, God provided assurance for disciples that day. And listen, he also does that for us. Well, how does God assure us today? He assures us through Christ revealed in the scriptures. Here's the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Tells us God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So the Father said to the disciples on the mountain, Hear him. The same call is for us today. He says to you and I, Hear my son. And how do we hear today? Through his word, through the scriptures, God's revealed word. We can read God's word for ourselves. What a blessing it is in this moment in world history to be able to own a copy of God's word and read it. Through the word, God speaks to us by his spirit. We can read it alone or we can also read it with others. Surely that's a helpful way to explore God's word. Reading the scriptures together. We can hear it preached in times like this one. One of God's ordained means of sustaining his people as the church gathers. 
So as we think about the doubts we face, we can make an intentional choice to give God's word the primary voice in our life. The challenge is, there are so many competing voices that will be glad to tell us how to live and what to trust in. You and I, you see, we make a choice constantly, daily, even unintentionally or intentionally to open ourselves up to any number of these voices. So, whose voice are you going to give the most influence in your life? See, when people are disengaged from God's word and from consistently gathering with God's people, it's not surprising that doubts grow. We begin to wonder... But in wandering, we open ourselves up to deeper depths of doubt. We find ourselves wandering away, not even because we've actually become convinced of the truthfulness of what we wondered about, but because we've wandered away from God's word and God's people. There are also times, though, when you will have some doubts and it's really worth exploring. Trying to examine a question to consider, is there something that will help me understand this, to undermine this doubt? And and listen, as you have those, we would love to serve you in that. If you find yourself with with some of these questions, reach out to your grow class leaders or, or one of the elders here. We would love to serve you, to recommend a book or even just a conversation. But we will also be helped if we're willing to come to grips with this. Church family, we must come to grips with the reality of mystery. The Christian faith involves mystery. Mystery, by the way, makes sense if we have an all-powerful, all-knowing God and we're not Him. It, It would make sense that there would be much of who He is and what He does that you and I won't fully understand in this life. And so sometimes, we need to hear this, sometimes the wisest, most godly thing for a Christian to say is, I don't know. That doesn't have to undermine our faith. To to say that there is much I do and can know about God, but I'll admit, in this situation, I don't know. Rather than trying to act like we don't have questions and face mystery. But you see, even as we face doubts, we we will be helped if we exercise the faith we do have. However much faith you have, exercise it. Author Vaughn Roberts says it this way. He says, faith must be exercised or else it will weaken and even die. God calls us to persevere in the Christian life despite our doubts, battling on until Christ returns and all our struggles end. On that day, we will not just believe, but we will see as well. Until that day, we persevere. So we see in our text, first of all, assurance for doubting disciples. But but secondly, and more briefly, we see hope for a desperate doubter. Hope. For a desperate doubter. We see this from verse 14 to the end of our section that we read in verse 32. Where the disciples find their way down the mountain with Jesus. And when they come down the mountain they find themselves in a great crowd. And as Jesus approaches they see him. They are amazed. And Jesus inquires of them. He says, what's going on? Why the crowd? 
And initially, no one answers. Then finally, one man explains that he had brought his son to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there, so they then brought that son to his disciples. His son was possessed by an evil spirit that absolutely devastated his life. And he'd asked the disciples to deliver his son, but they were unable. And so Jesus alludes to the faithlessness of the people broadly. The crowd that day was filled with doubt. And then Jesus then asked this man some questions. He says, how long has it been happening? The dad explains the situation and finally says to Jesus, help us. In fact, his words are interesting here. He says, if you can do anything. We can imagine the desperation of that dad. Can you help my son? Can you deliver him? Are you the answer? And Jesus responds, and the way he responds is significant. He responds with, if you can believe. Now, the reading really doesn't show this, but Jesus is responding directly to his comment, if you can do anything. In fact, some of you might have an asterisk there in your your text and and expands it to, if you can believe. He goes on to say, I'm able to do anything. Anything is possible if you can believe. So so Jesus gives this desperate dad a word of hope. And then the dad cries out again, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but I also doubt. I want to believe, but I'm not quite sure. See, this man, he did have some faith, though evidently, It must have been mustard seed sized. He freely admits it, by the way. He he doesn't try to hide it. And then Jesus casts the spirit out of the boy. And after the spirit comes out, initially it looks like the boy is dead. But then Jesus raises him up. And, And friends, we see some very helpful lessons here. One lesson is this. Authentic and maturing faith freely admits it's often small and weak. Authentic and maturing faith freely admits that it's often small and weak. That's a wise sign of faith to say, I have some faith, but I still have some doubt. I have faith, yes, Jesus, I I trust that you can, but I'm not quite sure my faith is big enough. Thankfully, this man's hope was not in the size of his faith but in the one he placed it in. We see again that that all things are possible with God, not because of who we are, how great we are, how big our faith is, but it's because of who God is. And church, this should give us tremendous hope when we struggle with doubt. I wonder how often you find yourself living in this mixture of belief and doubt, where if you were honest, you would admit That there are plenty of times in your life where you're tempted to think God can't really change you. You may think he changes some, but you doubt often he could change you. Or you doubt God could change this person in your life or in your family. You doubt that God cares enough to work in the circumstances of your life. But we see here that all things are possible with Jesus. Now, of course, this can be taken out of context and abused All of our regrets are ultimately governed by God's sovereign plan. There's there's mystery in that, certainly. But, But we also see here the invitation to ask Jesus boldly. 
Notice what this man does in desperation. He's basically praying. He's saying it directly to Jesus. This man was desperate. And honestly, desperation is a good place for God's people to be. In fact, let this man's cry to Jesus be an absolute astounding encouragement to you. There's a man by the name of Barnabas Piper who has written a helpful book on the topic of doubt called Help My Unbelief. In the book, Piper says this. He says, I believe, help my unbelief, should be the daily cry of every Christian. It's the cry of someone in the depths of despair who has only enough belief to say that prayer. And it's the cry of the fire-filled preacher before standing in the pulpit Sunday morning. It's the cry of the mother who is running out of patience with her children and the businessman who is just a couple of clicks away from viewing porn. It's the cry of the person who is spiritually dry and has no desire to open her Bible. And the person who has devoured all of Romans and is starting on 1 Corinthians just this morning. It is a confession of need. It is a celebration of hope. It is a good and wise cry for every one of us. Jesus, I believe. But help my unbelief today. Strengthen me in the face of doubts today. So let me ask you this question. Does does your mixture of belief and doubt drive you to Christian prayer or does it drive you away? Let your struggle with doubt cause you to turn to him. Honestly, honestly, one of the hardest things to do when we doubt is pray. But, But it's also the wisest thing we can do. Even if the only thing we can pray in that moment is Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now we come to a question I've wrestled with quite a bit, and and many have different perspectives on this. The question, is doubt sinful? Is it sinful to doubt? I I would say, if you asked a yes or no question there, I would say no. I would say, doubt is certainly a result of a sinful, fallen uh, world. But in itself, I, I don't think that doubt is particularly always sinful. I have to... I have to put a side comment here because often people just mask their settled unbelief by saying that they're doubt. That indeed is sinful. But doubt is different than unsettled belief. It is. We need to to consider that. Nowhere in the Bible, I believe, is doubt referred to as sin. So often Christians who are already struggling with doubt, this is what happens They start feeling incredibly guilty as if they're in sin and their doubt. And it becomes this crushing weight. And here's something that's just been on my heart this week. If you find yourself wrestling with doubt today, don't add to the sense that somehow you're sinning in your doubt. Now listen, you know whether your doubt is actual doubt or unsettled unbelief. Don't don't hide it. But when you find yourself doubting, it should be encouraging to know you're not the first to do it. In fact, as we read the gospel accounts, we see his closest disciples, Jesus' closest disciples, were very effective doubters. We see them doubting in our text. We see even after the resurrection, Thomas most famously doubting. You are in good company with God's people when you find yourself in doubt. And maybe you're here today. Wrestling with doubt. Maybe it took all that you had just to make your way here this morning. In addition, you feel in some measure that you're sinning in your doubt. Here's my encouragement to you. Let that weight go today. I don't believe you're sinning, but I do want you to know 
that doubt is significant and it certainly is dangerous. And so we don't ignore or downplay the doubts we have. We want to take those doubts seriously, not to dwell on them night and day and be paralyzed them, but it also doesn't help just to simply deny their existence. So so don't feel guilty if you have doubts, but also do not leave your doubts unaddressed. Take some some serious steps today to address those doubts. Maybe today after the service you would come forward and just ask us to pray for you in the midst of your struggle with doubt. We would love to serve you by praying for you. Maybe a step for you this week would be just to take up the Bible, to, to read it with another person you feel comfortable expressing your doubts to. Perhaps you may re-engage with a local church for the first time in your life or for the first time in a long time because you've wandered from that in your doubt. It it might be encouraging for you to read some good books mentioned today, explore your doubt with helpful resources. It might be joining a grow class, a place where you can share your doubts and be encouraged in the truth. Friends, we need to say this. Doubters are welcome here in this church. People who aren't Christians are welcome here as well. In fact, I want us to be a church that when someone shares with us their struggle with doubt, we don't downplay them or act as if they're insignificant. Let us be a church that listens well. In fact, the truth is, many of us could probably say, yes, I have doubted that too. And so we listen, we walk with, and we bear the weight of these doubts today. Do you find yourself in the darkness of doubt? Friend, there is assurance and hope to be found in Jesus Christ. Barnabas Piper again, he says it this way, speaking of faith and belief. He says, some days it will shine brightly and shed God's light on and through all of your life. Other times it will be obscured by clouds of distraction by our delusions of belief, by fear or doubt, or by something else. But being obscured doesn't mean it is doused. Sometimes it just takes time to break through those clouds. Here's the encouragement. If you're in the darkness of doubt today, keep holding on to the faith that you have, however small it is. Say today, I believe Help me, Lord, in my unbelief. The day will come when the the sun will shine brightly and the light of faith will refresh your weary soul again. But until then, address your doubts. Cry out to Jesus. Engage with God's people and wait because a day of light is coming. As a means of response this morning, as we've already mentioned, one way to respond is after the service. We... We'd love to pray for you today. You might say, I want to know more about how I trust in Christ for salvation or or what is baptism. We'd love to answer those questions as well. But in a moment, we're going to have a time that's filled with silence where you can pray right where you are. And maybe for most of us, if we're honest, the best prayer we could pray right in this moment is simply, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If that's all you can say today, then that's a good prayer to pray. After that time of silence, we'll pray together and partake of the Lord's Supper. But but let's now bow our heads in a time of silent prayer. And then I'll lead us in praying together.
And as we do that, our deacons, if we come forth for the Lord's Supper. Father, we are thankful that you assure and give hope to your people. Lord, you do not crush them in their doubts. I pray for many in the room who find themselves in the midst of a variety of doubts, who feel overwhelmed by it, who only see the darkness of it, some who feel even guilty for it. Lord, would you comfort, would you refresh and reassure them Lord, would you empower them to pray? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, help us to be a church who welcomes skeptics, welcomes doubters, where we are glad to walk with one another through seasons of doubt. We're we're focused on the means of grace you've given us in your word so that we would feel equipped to encourage them in their doubts. Lord, that we would be a church who takes part in the means of grace of prayer, we would commit ourselves to pray that you would provide the assurance and hope we are talking about today with those who doubt. Jesus, we are thankful that you are faithful to hear, you are faithful to intervene, and to work in our lives and in this world. We pray that you would do that today by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Church family, God has graciously saved us, his people, through Christ. The Lord has given us the Lord's Supper to remind us of just that. Being accomplished through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, there is only one, only one who has been holy, perfect, and obedient. Who's only one who's been blameless. And this is, of course, Christ Himself. He was crucified on our behalf. He has redeemed us. He's adopted us. And we will one day stand in glory with Him. Although, he has to return first to make all things new, to gather for himself people from the ends of the earth. And so, do you know and believe this to be true? Because you do need faith. You need both. See, you can't just know it. You, you do have to believe it, how little you do. So if you're sitting out here today and you not believe the things heard from this pulpit, the fact that Christ has given his life as a ransom for many, If you know yourself to be unsettled in your unbelief, then you're not invited to participate in this table. But if you know yourself to be a believer, yes, one who even struggles with doubt, and your posture is, I believe, I trust you, Lord, help my unbelief, then certainly you are invited this very hour to come and partake. But I implore you, if you're not a Christian, that you would take this time even now to cry out to the Lord this very hour. Because the beauty of the gospel is He is faithful to save those who call upon His name. And again, if you do know and believe, then we invite you to receive these elements and we will partake them together.
Let's take this time to review, to recall what the Lord has spoken to us, to reflect on his word, to prepare our hearts to receive this ordinance.